Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It is Ancient History Day and of course I am very, very excited as always because today we have with us Peter Stoppard who is an author, journalist, and historian. He writes primarily on ancient history, and he's with us today to talk about his brand new book, The Last Assassin. And I hope you guys know what this is about, The Last Assassin. Peter, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to you. Welcome to me. Great to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this because we always touch on this event on various different subjects of ancient history that we do or for example when we do down the pub we always touch on it but we never actually talk about it and we don't talk about the consequences so what we're talking about today is the assassination of are you already dun 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 Caesar first of all can you give us a brief overview of the situation in Rome under the dictator Caesar well having a dictator was not an attractive thing for a lot of the uh, posh guys in Rome, the guys, the guys who are used to rolling Rome and sharing power amongst themselves, suddenly found that um, not only did they had a dictator, but they because they'd had a, they'd dictators in emergencies before, but they had a dictator who was going to be a dictator for life, and that essentially meant that all the good jobs in the provinces, all the things you can make money out of, all the sort of power you could have and influence, and uh, you know, being a big guy in Rome suddenly well, it was all in the hands of one guy and he handed it out the, the, the jobs to his friends or sometimes to his enemies or people he wanted to, to kind of pardon or to, or to um, be nice to, but it didn't make any difference because everything was controlled by him. And so people thought, hmm, this is, this is new, uh, we don't like this. And maybe even he wants to continue that, maybe he wants to... Be, turn himself into a king or a kind of hereditary autocrat of some sort or another. So a lot of people who had used to having power themselves or their families having power found that their chances were suddenly all dependent on Caesar. And they started getting together and deciding what, that they didn't like that and uh, what they might do about it. I find this a little bit ironic, really, because not long after Caesar's death, you do more or less get a king aka Augustus so <laughs> I just find it quite amusing that that's that's the sequential of, um, sequence of events yeah well that, that, that was the, the um, terrible irony about it for the, for the assassins and uh, only the assassin who lasted um, right to the end 
the guy uh, I've been writing about called Cassius Parmentis, who managed to survive for 14 years after the uh, assassination. He was the only one who saw that all the sort of high-flown chat that they'd had before the assassination about, you know, is it the right to kill a, is it right to kill a tyrant? You know, is it, um, um, what are the pros and cons? You know, is, is, is it better to, uh, to, to, is liberty better than, is, is, is liberty better than, is getting liberty better than avoiding civil war, if you, if you like? Um, all, all those quite high-flown arguments about how you should conduct yourself. All, all sort of turned to nothing over over the, the last 14 years because you actually got at the end uh, an autocrat more autocratic, you know, more single, more of the power of a single man than there's any evidence that Caesar would ever have done himself. So it's a good example of how you can do something for what you think is the right reasons, but it can have consequences very different from the ones that you uh, that you you hope for. So then Caesar gets too big for his boots. He gets assassinated. Um, we all know why he's assassinated. He gets, again, too big for his boots. But can you tell us what actually happens on the Ides of Mars? He made a lot of, yes, he had around him a lot of people who he had every reason to think of in the Senate it were his friends. And there, some of those were people who uh, he'd fought with, uh, alongside with him in, in Gaul and who'd been very close to him and had done stuff with him and who felt that they should be doing well out of his dictatorship. But there are also people who'd been his enemies who he'd pardoned and they felt very guilty and well ashamed about being pardoned. There were people whose wives he'd seduced. There were people whose land he had taken away and given to his mistress. There were people who felt that they should have been more powerful than they were and people who thought they should have been richer than they were. But there was no suggestion... And I don't think in his mind, whatever Shakespeare says, that uh, that they thought they were, they were all going to gang up and assassinate him, which because it was a very unusual thing. I mean, he was uh, it, it wasn't the sort of general killing they were planning. It, uh, uh, you know, a sort of hole in the corner, you know, running through the sword in a back alley. This was a large group of, of fellow senators, not no longer his equals, but people who, were, who felt they were the same class as him, um, getting together agreeing in secret that it was the right thing to do, having their daggers somehow with them under their togas, and um, and piling in on him like a rugger scrum in, in the Senate. And, and although Rome was a very violent society and lots of uh, you know, the murders uh, happening all the time, uh, not all of them uh, even illegal, uh, nonetheless, this was a joint enterprise assassination by a lot of very grand people against another grand person. It was a it was a big event, and they all piled in on him. Uh, he couldn't really defend himself because he didn't have any wep- he didn't have any weapons much other than the pen he was writing with. No one stood up for him pretty much. Uh, they all um, anybody who might have stood up for him that, that they managed to keep away, mainly particularly Mark Antony, but even they doubt whether Mark Antony would have stood up for him either. And so he was all on his own in the end, and uh, died in a heap uh, on, on the on the Senate floor. And all the Senate, all the senators rushed out, including the conspirators. The conspirators hoped to become great heroes, and everybody would clap and say, "Well, well done." But it turned out uh, quite quickly that uh, although a lot of the grand people were quite happy to get rid of Caesar, uh, the uh, poorer people, the voters, the particularly the army weren't, and after that um, things started to go 
pretty badly for the assassin. Though they, uh, over the next 14 years, have plenty of chances where they might have won. But uh, the, the idea that they would be acclaimed as great heroes from the start was, uh, they lost that right away. So all these Renaissance paintings of the death of Caesar are more or less what happened. Yeah, I mean, they all give different different uh, uh, takes on it. And of course, the, the, their imagination is no, better, is, is no better than ours. We, we, we have quite a few accounts of, of, of what happened. It, it's a it's an important date in terms of, you know, for history hacks, it's important because we probably know more about what happened on that day from different accounts and different people's interests than we do for a thousand years or so. You know, it, it's people often say, well, what, how can you possibly know what happened, you know, in Roman history? You know, we've got, only got so few sources. But in fact, there are many days that we know a lot about what happened and the, the day of Caesar's assassination is one of them. So there were 13 men who took part in this assassination. Might have been many more than, might have been many more than that. Uh, a guy, one of the sources, Nicholas of, of Damascus, says that there were 80, and that there was like some people say 23, some people say, you know, 43, 19. We, we, we don't have that many names. I think it's very possible that even the people involved in the plot didn't know how many people were were, were in it because um, Brutus and Cassius have been sounding out people in code. Rather carefully, not surprisingly, they wanted to see whether they were likely to join the plot. And um, they couldn't just say, go up to someone in a room and at a party and say, are you up for it? Are you, you know, are, are you in our plot to kill Caesar? Because someone might have overheard, or, and there were slaves everywhere, and, and the slaves might have gone off and told other slaves or told somebody else. So they had to talk in a kind of philosophical code. That's one of the, one of the reasons why the philosophy interests me a lot, and, you know, and it's, it's important to this because it was, by asking them sort of questions about what you know what was the right thing to do in different circumstances. So I, th- I bet even at the, at the end, even when the act happened, that Brutus and Cassius didn't know exactly how many people were with them. So you write about 13, 13 of these men. Um, you've already mentioned Brutus. Most of us know, well, I hope most of us know who Brutus is, uh, and Cassius, actually. But what about some of the others? Can you tell us a little about a few of the other assassins? That we well, know they're mi- well, they're a mixed bunch. I mean, they're all people from the the, the upper class, if you like. So the guy I chose, Cassius Parmensis, was probably one of the most obscure and came from, you know, Parma in the north of... wasn't even in Italy, even in Italy then. And he was a sort of provincial uh, guy who thought of himself as a bit of a poet and, and a, a playwright and a bit of a philosopher. And he's not the old-fashioned chap who comes to, you know, who's in Rome... That's not the kind of sharpest knife in the drawer, but um, you know he was a kind of he was one of the more the ordinary guy. That's why I, I find his perspective, you know, looking at it through his eyes, so unusual and interesting, and that's something I, I hadn't done before I began began this project. But most of them were were, were, were grand figures. Uh, there was a guy uh, take someone called a guy called Minucius Basilus. He was a Pretty nasty work, landowner from down in the south the south of Italy. His his sort of habit when his slaves didn't pay properly was to uh, cut off their ears, ears and cut off their noses. And uh, generally, uh, was, I suspect not the nicest person to have uh, for a master if, if you were a slave. Sounds like uh, a charmer. Fought, <laughs> a charmer. Yeah. He he'd fought with uh, Caesar in Gaul and had done quite well, but he let a big Gallic chieftain off. You know, he could have captured him and then let the guy, the guy somehow escape. So Caesar wasn't too, wasn't too pleased with him. And therefore when he came home, 
and he was expecting to get lots of rewards, you know, the consulship, big jobs, big provincial government. He thought he was going to be a really big man. Uh, Caesar didn't really give him what he wanted, and so he was definitely up for, for, for killing Caesar. Uh, and then there was, uh, there was Tilius Kimber. You know, he was someone who fought against Caesar along with his brother, and uh, Tilius Kimber had been pardoned by Caesar, which made him feel perhaps a bit ashamed, but... Um, Caesar hadn't pardoned his brother who fought for Caesar's enemies for a bit longer. And so he was, you know, angry and upset that um, his, his brother hadn't, hadn't been pardoned. There, were, there was a guy called Galba who was one of the many people who Caesar had had an affair with his wife. Uh, there were people who, there was a guy called uh, Pontius Aquila who was fed up with Caesar because Caesar had, he, he refused to stand up and uh, do and sort of honour Caesar like a king when Caesar was beginning to expect to be honoured a bit like a king and uh, Caesar noticed this and said well look you're not going anywhere while I'm in charge and so he had plenty of reason to uh, get rid of Caesar a lot of Cassius you know the the most famous one in in Julius Caesar the the, the more famous Cassius who was with Brutus the co-leader I mean he'd had some lions which he was prepared to in cages that he was going to put on in the circus in a great show, it would have made him seem a big a big guy. And Caesar just sort of commandeered these lions and said, "Oh no, I have those lions." Now, these are, all these things sound quite trivial, but um, in, in the kind of Roman idea of of, of, of honour and um, propriety and what, what was deserved and what wasn't deserved, whether it was your wife or sort of lions or a job you didn't get. Uh, all these were good reasons to add, you know, adding up to the to, to why you might join a plot that had been set up for the honourable reason, or sort of seemingly honourable reason, of, um, of of stopping a tyrant turning himself into a king and a hereditary monarch. I mean, Caesar pissed off a lot of people. I mean, sleeping with someone's wife, I can I can see that being justified. You slept with my wife, you will die. <laughs> well, Caesar slept with. Almost everybody's wife, and they weren't perhaps quite as fussy about it as um, as later as, as later periods would be. But nonetheless, uh, it was uh, uh, people could take could take exception to it. And, and Caesar's uh, mistress is, the, the, in as much as we can talk about the love of someone's life in the ancient world, because we're a bit short of information about that, it was called Servilia, and, and Servilia was uh, Brutus's mother. So, um, so the, the, one, of, one of the key leaders of the uh, assassination was the, the, the son of, uh, of, of Caesar's fav- favourite mistress. I mean, it was all quite a family affair uh, at, at the top, both the, on, on all sides. And uh, it, um, it's often you get the impression that no one was really taking quite enough notice of what the ordinary people were thinking. I've, I've got to laugh. So basically Caesar was sleeping with Brutus's. I did not know that. So, base another one. You slept with my mum. You died. <laughs> well, he didn't sleep. No, Servilia was, according to some people think, was the sort of he'd been his great love since he was a teenager. Other people say that their affair started a, 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 a lot later. Servilia was a very, very powerful woman. It, it, it's very difficult um, working through the, the power and influence of, of, of women in each ancient Rome because they're sort of to a large extent, written out of the story. Just They had to sort of do their working behind the scenes and in secret. But Servilia does pop up. I mean, she chairs some very important meetings after the assassination has taken place. And it's quite clear that when a big guy like Cicero was there, 
who normally everybody would listen to and say, you know, Cicero this and Cicero that. Um, the person actually in charge of the meeting who seemed to have the biggest influence on what was would happen or not was Servilia, Brutus's mother and Caesar's, um, well, but then dead Caesar's mistress. Oh, we're going to do some Cicero bashing a little bit later on. But before we get to a bit of Cicero bashing, uh, after Caesar's assassination, so Mark Antony, another name everybody should know, he summons the Senate, doesn't he? What what happens then? Immediately after the assassination, although they, the assassins weren't greeted as heroes, it was quite clear to the the the, 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 the general senatorial will, if you like, that it would be best if you just pretended that Caesar never existed. That if they kind of pardoned the assassins and said, well, look, okay, we're not going to punish you. We're not going to praise you too much. We're not going to punish you. Um, everybody can have the jobs that Caesar had previously given them. Caesar had set the jobs that people were going to have for the next three years because he was going off on a big military campaign. So a lot of the top people had a lot to gain from keeping Caesar's so-called actor, that the decisions that he'd already made, because they were all going to make a lot of money and get a lot of, a lot of power out of it. So they did a kind of deal, um, Mark Antony and Cicero and the, and, and the assassins, did a deal whereby essentially they wouldn't go after the assassins, they wouldn't go and hunt them down, they wouldn't praise them and say they were superheroes, and everybody would get the job that previously Caesar had said he could have. And this seemed like quite a nice... A, a, arrangement and uh, um, you know people would say well Caesar was a bit of a blip a bit of a you know all got a bit out of hand get rid of Caesar you know everything can go back to normal but um, unfortunately Caesar had, had left a will and he left his name and his estate whatever that was um, to his one of his sisters he had two sisters and one of them had a grandson, so not exactly a, that close a relative, um, called, Octa- called Octavius. And he was a sort of student, he was like an 18-year-old kid on a sort of student gap year kind of holiday in Greece. And um, no one much had heard of him. No one really had expected he would play much of a part. He might come home and ask for the money. And they give him a bit of money and, t- and tell, him, tell him to go away. Um, and they'd be able to continue with their deal. But Octavius turned out to be a rather remarkable um, person, certainly a very uh, extraordinary boy. And he came back and he realised very quickly that the soldiers and the, the people liked the name of Caesar. Caesar was a kind of good brand for them. You know, Caesar had given them food and he'd given them jobs and had brought a lot of money back. And, uh, and he hadn't actually taken much power from the, from the people. The people still had the quite considerable power that the people had in Rome. It was only the senators who he was sort of t- taking the power from. So o- Octavius discovered in quite short order that um, by saying, I am the new Caesar, everybody would, uh, he would, he could, take a lot more than a bit of pocket money from Caesar's piggy bank and uh, soldiers started going over to him, he came over and once Caesar, once Octavius was making the argument that I am the new Caesar and these assassins uh, are vile, terrible uh, murderers poor Mark Antony in order to stay in the game didn't have much choice but to do the same thing so um, 
Mark, Mark Antony started attacking the uh, assassins and uh, going after them too. So you ended up for 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 a while with a rather complicated sort of four four sometimes sort of five way battle you know, between two suspicious. Octavian and Mark Antony were pretty suspicious of each other. Various senators were pretty suspicious of each other, and and then there were the assassins who were, by then had sort of split and were some in the east and some in the west. So it was a very complicated uh, picture with some very grisly, unpleasant uh, scenes. But basically, the idea that if you were on Caesar's side, if you were Caesar's soldier or Caesar's voter, you would support the hunting to the death of each of the assassins who killed Caesar, suddenly became the only show in town. And if you were on Caesar, you, couldn't, you either had to be for that or against it. It's just, it just sounds like a complete and utter mess right now. Well, it gets a bit, it gets a bit simpler. <laughs> there were lots of different places where the fighting took, you know, happened. And one of the interesting things about writing a book like this is that I take it, you know, moment by moment through what was happening at any particular time. So I, I don't assume, as people do if you look back on it, on events, that everybody knew what was going to happen, and also had to, people had some, some, some magic idea of what was happening in all the different places. Uh, ancient warfare um, um, was extremely confusing because the communication was, was so poor. I mean, and ancient battles were very confusing, and as battles remained very confusing right up until the ni- 19th century. It was very difficult to know anything that wasn't happen, happening just around you, you know, a, few, a few yards around you. So there's no point trying to pretend that, it, that it's all fantastically simple and that there was a good guy and a bad guy or even one side or another side. There were frequently many sides in many places uh, out of which almost anything could have happened and um, one thing did. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So before we get into the fate of some of these assassins, um, thought we'd do a little bit of uh, a discussion about Cicero. I'm going to pretend I like Cicero right now. Um, but he wasn't one of the assassins, but he was a supporter, wasn't he? So how did he actually support the assassination? Why? And what happened to him because of it? He supported the assassination um, big time as soon as it had happened. 
he wrote to the guy I was talking about just now, the guy who used to lock the ears and nose of his slave, uh, Minutius Basilus, and said, you know, wrote him a note saying, oh, glorious day, wonderful day, marvellous people, you know, wish I'd been with you. Uh, you know, he, he, he went on a sort of whole scheme of uh, how marvellous the assassins were. He, before that, they hadn't really trusted him to to be involved in the in the assassination. I think they probably thought that he was just too clever by half. And any clever argument that you could put for an assassination, Cicero was smart enough, and he was very smart, you know, to put the counter-argument as to why it would be a bad idea. So if you said, look, you know, you can't have a decent life under, under a tyrant, you might have said, well, the other way of looking at it is to say if you get rid of a tyrant, you'll get civil war, and civil war is even worse than tyranny. And uh, those are the kind of arguments that Cicero was... You know, using Greek and mainly Greek examples was very good at. So he was probably a bit irritating to people who decided they wanted to kill Caesar. So they didn't involve him in, in beforehand. He was also a great blabbermouth, and he had he had a great house with with constant sort of gossip parties. And um, and so they probably thought that, that this plot would stand even less chance of remaining secret if Cicero knew about it. So he only got Cicero only got really excited after the um, uh, after the assassination was over. And then he sort of took on the role of trying to sort of be the negotiator. So the deal I was just talking about between him, between the assassins and Mark Antony, to basically pretend that the whole, that the Caesar had never existed and everybody take their money and, and run and, and get the jobs. And he, Cicero was the kind of broker of that. But then Cicero and Antony, Cicero actually had a lot of form going back. Cicero had put to death the husband of of Antony's mother uh, when he'd been consul a few years back and uh, it didn't take long before Cicero took the, the when he saw that Antony and probably Octavian but Antony was, was more powerful at the, at the beginning was, was may, might be trying to become a kind of Caesar himself he took the side tried to do, take the side of the, the Senate wanted everything to go back to normal I'm simplifying here but the Senate wanted to get everything back to normal and, and the assassins who were pleased to have got rid of Caesar and he really went for Antony and he delivered the speeches of the so-called Philippics with some of the most abusive speeches about an individual um, saying what a louse he was um, that have ever, ever been delivered in any um, political forum anywhere so uh, Cicero and Antony were uh, completely uh, at odds and Cicero was delighted when it looked at one moment when Antony had lost to one of the assassins Decimus Brutus uh, up in uh, up in the north but then it turned out to be a big mistake and Antony hadn't lost he got away uh, Decimus Brutus was the, the third assassin to be killed on, on Antony's orders up, uh, up in the north and Antony then was in a position of you know considerable power and when he and Octavian decided that for a while, maybe best if they were on the same side and uh, to deal with the assassins. So Octavian and Antony got together saying, we're on Caesar's side. Uh, Cicero was high in, on the list of the people that uh, they wanted to bring to a nasty end and uh, Cicero did indeed come to a very nasty end. We are going to talk about the third assassin but before we do get to that stage and by the way, love that the ending that Cicero got, you get what you deserve, in all honesty. Um, 
so the, all of the 13 assassins I we can't cover all of them on this podcast however much I'd love to sit here for two or three hours discussing this with you let's talk about the first assassin to die he didn't it didn't take long for him to die can you tell us what happened to him Gaius Trebonius was a, a soldier of, uh, of, of Caesar's, but he was quite an intellectual. In fact, he was a kind of editor, if you like, he, of, of, of bits of Cicero. He, he produced little books for people who wanted to sound like Cicero, but couldn't be in Rome to listen to the whole speeches. So he, um, so he was quite a, considered himself a rather civilized and intellectual s- soldier. And, um, he got a good job after the, uh, after the Ides of March, because, he, because Caesar had promised it to him before, and he was going to be a governor of Asia. And he took the view that he would just scamper off to Asia straight away, get his governorship going, get the tax money coming in, and uh, get rich, which was what they all wanted and, and, and needed to do. But he uh, fell foul of a man called Dolabella, an ex- sort of hitman, uh, kind of a, a sort of hitman rowdy, who was a, from a very grand aristocratic family, but had been effectively a bit of an enforcer for Caesar. For Caesar. And he uh, had also, to Cicero's complete um, annoyance, had married uh, Cicero's daughter, and had been an extremely, I think, rather abusive and extorting uh, son-in-law. So Cicero didn't like Dolabella, but hardly anybody liked Dolabella, but he was a, a good guy to have on your side in a fight. Uh, Dolabella uh, becomes consul after Caesar's death, amazingly, and gets the consulship that Caesar had to give up in order to, uh, was planned to give up in order to uh, to go and fight, and gave up instead by dying. So Dolabella becomes consul, and he hairs off uh, to uh, try and take take the, the province of Syria, and on the way he stops in, in uh, Smyrna, which is a, a city in in, in Tribonius's uh, province, and the two of them sort of eye, have a bit of a careful eyeballing to eyeballing, with um, Tribonius pretty keen on learning the latest gossip about what's happening in Rome, and uh, Dolabella wanting to know where the money was. Dolabella was always broke. So he wanted Caesar's money, he wanted Trebonius's money, and he was also, by then, aligning himself with Mark Antony. And all those three things together meant that he saw the benefit of being the first guy to kill one of the assassins of Julius Caesar. And because he also wanted the money, probably, and wanted to extort some information from Trebonius, he brings in a guy... Um, and some soldiers, and a guy called the Sumerian. And the soldiers go into uh, Trebonius' bedroom and say, um, uh, Dolabella wants to see him. And, uh, and Trebonius says, well, um, I'm, not go- I'm, not, I'm not going there. And uh, they say, well, you're, you know, your head's going anyway, you know, kind of. Um, so they just threaten to sort of get, cut his head off straight away. And... Um, and then Dolabella himself comes in with it, with a, this Sumerian sort of professional arms maker and torturer who who hots up his irons and tightens his the the, uh, the rack and uh, puts poor Trebonius through it for uh, two days before they cut Trebonius's head off and, and the soldiers sort of kick it kick it around the, the promenade of, of Smyrna. The early account of uh, football in the uh, military in the military machine. <laughs> 
I'm so sorry for laughing. <laughs> so Trebonius comes to a particularly nasty end. Now, whatever, however Trebonius, however bad Trebonius's end was, by the time Cicero got to hear about it, it became like sort of ten times worse. So Cicero did a speech against Mark Antony by attacking Dolabella, but attacking Mark Antony through Dolabella, uh, describing the absolute outrage of these two senators, one torturing the other, because it's okay in Rome to torture slaves, and it was, you know, okay, you know, foreigners perhaps, um, who knows, but um, for, for, for Roman senators to torture each other was definitely beyond, you know, not beyond what was okay. And uh, so one of uh, Cicero's most vicious speeches uh, against Mark Antony was his uh, was his attack on Dolabella, Antony's man, for, for killing Trebonius. And Trebonius was the uh, first assassin to die. I love that. One rule for them, another rule for the others. It's uh, quite... Yeah, well, that's, that's very important. You can't understand... Uh, ancient history, unless you, unless you understand that, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes to talk about it now because because the things that they did kind of perfectly normally seem so appalling to us. And you know, you, you, writing ancient history is like walking a tightrope. You look down on one side of the tightrope and you see people, you know, having affairs with other people's wives and having quarrelling over sex and money and power and basically seeming pretty much like us. And then you, you look down the other side of the tightrope. And you find that they, you know, the, the, the way they treat their slaves and their attitude to slaves and their attitude to honour and their attitude to their own history is is really completely different from ours, and and uh, we would often say completely deplorable. But you you can't understand the whole of of, of, of what happened after Caesar's assassination or in any other part of Roman history unless you're prepared to look down on, on both sides of the tightrope. So we've briefly spoken about the third assassin. Tell us, how does he meet his end? Decimus Brutus. He escaped from uh, the big first battles, which were in Parma. You know, Cassius Parmentus, his hometown, was completely destroyed by Mark Antony's brother. And it was destroyed so badly that even, you know, Cicero could only sort of, he wrote a letter which only two words survive, miserimos parmenses, you know, the poor, wretched people of Parma. They were just completely smashed uh, in, in, this, in this battle. And it went d- different ways. It was fought in mud and, and, and swamp, and there were different armies at different times. Decimus Brutus, who was a powerful commander for, for Caesar in Gaul and really had seen it all, I think became completely disillusioned and, and depressed by the whole business and uh, he, there was a brief period when he thought he'd won but uh, it, all went, it all came to nothing and he had to, he had to escape uh, and uh, he, he tried to escape as it were north over the Alps and cross over to Greece and to join Brutus and Cassius but uh, um, when Mark Antony and Octavian got together soon after that they set up a, a set of rules by which anybody of the assassins could be just killed um, w- w- without any cause whatsoever and, and uh, Decimus Brutus en- ended up in the hands of a, a Gallic chieftain uh, now who, who, who killed him I, I suspect, I don't know if if, uh, uh, if Decimus Brutus was lucky he had a, a quick death at the hands of the Gallic chieftain but given what uh, Caesar and uh, Decimus Brutus had done to the Gauls you might think he might not have done 
Okay, we've mentioned the Kimber brothers. There's both of them. Uh, they both meet their end together, don't they? Well, we don't know when, yeah, probably. Um, there was a big battle. Once the, the, the story of what happened to the assassins after Caesar's death is in various phases, but the, the, the point when, period when they're at their highest point was before the so-called Battle of, of Philippi, the two battles, and, and that's where um, a lot of the assassins were killed. And Tilius Kimber uh, was definitely part of, of, of the march with Brutus and Cassius to Philippi. He was a he was a bit of a drunk. He was he used to like uh, had a good time on parade, good you know a good good talker. But you know when it came to a, a crunch, he was also a really good guy to have on your side, and uh, he. Uh, Help them to uh, get into a really good position before the battle, and uh, it was important. But he and uh, he and his brother, I suspect, both 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 died at both died at Philippi. So there's a nice chunk of your book that is obviously about the last man standing, so the last of the assassins to die. And you mentioned earlier it took 14 years for him to die. I mean, that's he survived a pretty long long time compared to some of the others. What actually happens to him? How does he manage to get and stay alive for 14 years? Cassius Parmensis kept on joining the side of whoever he thought might defeat Octavian. And although it's uh, was a very important, fascinating, extremely dramatic and thrilling 14 years of history, people tended not to be that interested in it so much because people were interested in the end of the Republic and fall of Julius Caesar, and they're in, very interested in the rise of Octavian and in the beginning of the empire because we had emperors for so many, such a long time, thousand years or so after, after that. So the bit in the middle, um, you know, becomes a bit, um, a, a bit obscure. And some of the people who could easily have um, made a difference um, just more or less get written out of history altogether. So there's a guy called Sextus Pompeius, for instance, who was the son of Pompey, who um, Caesar defeated in his first of his civil, civil wars. And uh, he was a really powerful figure. He ruled all of Sicily and huge areas of, of the coast. He was a big naval commander. And uh, once the Battle of Philippi had been lost on land, Cassius Parmensis, who was in charge of some ships that the assassins were going to use in the next stage, uh, took the ship down and joined... Uh, Sextus Pompeius, so he was in Sicily um, in what was effectively a, a kind of rival state in which Octavian couldn't do, couldn't do anything about. Uh, Sextus Pompeius at various points might easily have uh, allied with Antony to, de- to defeat Octavian and then maybe he could have defeated Antony because uh, with, with his navy and uh, the whole story could have been totally different. So Cassius Parmensis first was with Brutus and Cassius at sea, and then he was with Sextus Pompeius when he was fighting massive naval battles against against Octavian. And then once um, the biggest of those battles was lost, um, the uh, Cassius Parmensis even, amazingly, uh, joined Mark Antony, who he'd been so opposed to. And so in, in the final battle, um, Battle of Actium, as it's called, um, Cassius Parmensis was then fighting with, Ac- with Antony, his, his, one of his former enemies, 
against the greatest enemy, um, Octavian. And, and then when the battle of, when the battle of Actium was lost, um, Cassius Parmensis, he, he could have gone, tried to go somewhere else. He could have maybe tried to leave the Roman Empire altogether. But in fact, he went and sat in Athens amongst all the other sort of relics of, the, of what had been 14 years or more of, uh, of civil war. And you can imagine a sort of a lot of old, lot of old soldiers there looking back and thinking, uh, you know, what went wrong or what went right? And frankly, was that assassination worth doing altogether? And then Cassius Parmentus was in his, um, you can imagine, he was in retirement. He had his books, he had his poetry, he was a playwright. He, you know, I don't suppose life was, was, was so bad for him. But he must have known that uh, since Octavian had got all the other assassins, including quite recently his best mate, a guy called Turullius, who'd been uh, executed on cost for cutting down a few trees, uh, but not really, uh, but he'd been, a, he'd been an assassin too. So it, look, it look, did look as though Octavian was going through the card and that Cassius Parmentus was the last one. And uh, Cassius Parmentus had these terrible dreams uh, of uh, large... Uh, bearded, dishevelled men coming coming to him at night, and uh, uh, nasty sense of the, that the spirit world wasn't going his way. And uh, not long after that, a man with a sword came from Octavian, and uh, that was the end of the last assassin. Wow, um, I've got to tell you, I, I, abs- I really, I really loved your book. Absolutely loved your book. Um, talking about all all 13 of these men so I really recommend people to go out there and buy it because we've just today touched on all the information that is in this book like I said I could sit here for hours listening but um, I could you tell our listeners exactly where they can get your book and the title of the book just to remind them uh, the book is called The Last Assassin The Hunt for the Killers of uh, Julius Caesar and I last went into Waterstones. It was uh, piled up on, on in a, a table, very visible. So it's got a pic- wonderful picture of a bloody hand against a sort of marble wall. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon and on Blackwell's and uh, all good bookshops, as they say. And um, uh, I, I hope uh, hope you read it. People say it's more like a thriller than a history book, and uh, uh, I was delighted delighted to hear that the, the critics. Uh, Say that it was it was a a good thriller read because uh, what, 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 what more can you ask than that? I completely agree. I, I personally I couldn't put it down, and I wish we could talk about all the assassins today because I love talking about ancient history. But I really want to thank you so much for joining us. It was absolutely insightful learning about these thirteen men and doing a bit of Cicero bashing because we love a bit of Cicero bashing on this podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to have. Good to be here. Join us tomorrow when all of my interview dreams come true and I get to spend uh, nearly an hour with Simon Sebag Montefiore talking about the Romanovs. We go from start to finish with the dynasty. Um, we chuckle at some of them and lament some of the others and pick our favourites. So don't miss out on that one. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.
Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.